The NIH has long operated a series of popular government-wide acquisition contracts through its Technology Acquisition and Assessment Center, known as NITAC. The solicitation for the new vehicle, known as CIO SP4, was barely out before it ran into protests. Since then, NITAC has issued eight amendments to that solicitation, and it's making industry scratch its head. To help sort it all out, one of the protesting attorneys and a partner at Palero Maza, Cy Alba. Mr. Alba, good to have you on. Glad to be here. And let's review what your original grounds for protesting the solicitation were in the first place. This goes back, I guess, just barely a couple of months now. Yeah, so originally what happened is they came out with the RFP, and they came out with the draft like a year ago. Then they came out with the original RFP. They allowed everybody to essentially rely on subcontractors to fulfill various requirements, pretty much every requirement, not just the prime. And then they came out with Amendment 3, which changed that and said, no, you can only rely upon the prime contractor. And in addition to that, even if you're in a mentor-protege relationship, which is a special relationship blessed by SBA to allow large businesses potentially to team with small businesses and they get special advantages, even in that context, you can only use one past performance reference per item from your large business mentor. And that is identical to essentially what they would allow in this amendment for everyone else. And the particular protest, that issue was that you're not allowed to treat protégés the same as other offerors. And so it was challenging that to increase it, which they then increased it to two and there were other changes. That was the original protest. So it sounds like they were wrong, in your view, on two counts. One, they were changing the ground rules as they were going along. And second, they were in somewhat of a conflict with rules from the SBA, which should be governing all small business-related procurements. that fair way to summarize it? Exactly. So since then, then they have been putting out amendments. As we speak, it's up to eight, which has got to be making everybody crazy. In fact, a lot of vendors have said it's making them crazy (laughs) because they have to basically, if you're changing the basis of the point rating system by which you're maybe getting a contract on CIOSP4, that is a huge amount of work. I mean, these solicitations run hundreds of pages and detail. And then the short time periods that the NITAC gave people to change their bids, is that also part of the issue here? Yeah, I think from a business or practical perspective, that is the main issue that people are having. Because you put out the draft RFP in the summer of last year, almost a year ago to today, People start putting teams together, start planning. Then you drop the final RFP. Then you give people like a month and a half to respond. Their teams are basically already together. And then you say, well, you can't use subcontractors, even though you allowed it four weeks ago or two weeks ago. Now you change it. Now you can't. You can't change on a dime like that. So forcing people to switch around is very difficult. And I think One of the main things, too, is this idea of a CTA, which is listed all over the RFP, which is a contractor teaming arrangement. That is kind of the nexus of all the problems and all the ills here, because it cites to a very particular section of the FAR, which lists two types of CTAs. One is a partnership or joint venture, and the other one is just your standard prime contractor, subcontractor relationship. The FAR is not meant to be like strict rules to follow and how to structure teams. They're more guidelines for contracting officers, right? And that's been an issue too, because that's just, they're using it in a way that's, um, that's I think, inappropriate. 
And we even called that out, by the way, in the draft RFP and asked them through one of the local chambers of commerce here, asked them to change that and stop using that term because it's confusing. We're speaking with Cy Alba. He's a partner at the law firm Palero Maza. Well, let me ask you this in the larger sense. These big GWACs are open to dozens, scores, sometimes hundreds of contractors. Are they being overly fussy and prescriptive in the first place for something that's basically a fairly wide open marketplace? Yeah, I think so. And especially because at the end of the day, you have to compete for every task order. So just winning this procurement just gets you, it's a hunting license. You get a seat at the table and they're going to be able to prescribe different rules for different task order procurements that come out, every agency that orders off of it. Also, I think if I were on their shoes, I would not be surprised that people are so upset because what's been happening with category management and the idea of consolidating procurements into these giant procurements is you're going to get everybody vying for these. Because if you don't get a seat at this table, you're out for five years or until they do some on-ramp, and that's critical. And is it fair to say that CIOSP4 has unique opportunities for contractors that they might not have if they're, say, on one of the GSA, GWACs, or on NASA Soup? Yeah, so they're really focusing on health IT stuff here. But also NITAC and every agency that puts these out, they also want people to market it heavily, and they want everything ideally. NITAC would love if every single IT procurement the federal government ever made went through here because they get their cut, right? And it helps with their budget. So that just exacerbates this. Like everyone's pushing to consolidate. And at the same time, the agencies want you to market it to other federal agencies to use it. So if that works, then the people on the outside are really on the outside. Sure. Well, on the surface, all of the operators of these GWACs get along together. They don't say bad things about each other publicly, but they're fighting tooth and nail, I think, for some of the same dollars that could possibly go to any one of them. So is CIOSP4 off the rails, in your opinion? Can it be salvaged, or is it simply just a matter of maybe giving contractors more time to reset all of the expectations based on the amendments? Yeah, I wish they would give more time. I think because of the main issue is this like reorganizing your teams and this idea of CTAs and things, because the way the rules are set up, especially for small companies, they really need to form joint ventures and is like separate entities, whether it's a partnership, LLC, whatever. And you have to get a cage code. And right now cage codes are taking 20 to 30 days for DLA to issue that. That's the agency responsible to issue these cage codes. And if you just give people two weeks or 11 days in this case to scramble, there's not enough time to set up a new entity and get it going, even if you do it perfectly. Well, the NITAC people must know that. Doesn't anyone ever call up and say, hey, guys, what, what's going on here? We need another 60 or 90 days. And you know it. Yes, and that's exactly what's happened. I've done that. I know a few colleagues at other firms who I work with who have done that, other lawyers. And PSC, Professional Services Council, they've also requested that. And I guess they're just not listening. Interesting. And just, I guess, for purposes of background, can you characterize what it is they're seeking on CIOSP4 as service-oriented as opposed to product-oriented? Because when the first generation of all of these, SOUP and CIO and the others, it was highly product-oriented, workstations and hardware, printers and so forth. Have they devolved more, I should say, evolved more to service offerings? And that's why you need all of these teaming arrangements. 
Exactly. This one is very much service oriented. In fact, the RFP states that the contract that's going to be issued will allow for product acquisition, but only if it's incidental to the work being performed. So it's really a service oriented contract, IT services. So that makes the GSA general uh, multiple award schedules, which is now one big schedule, the place to go to sell and buy product even through all of this. Right. You got soup, which is like your software resellers, basically. IT value-added resellers, you got GSA, which is really ideal for products. They have services, but it was really built for products. And then these, like Oasis and CISP4, are really for your services, IT services. And getting back to CISP4, what now is the deadline and what do contractors need to do as it stands today? So the deadline is the 3rd of August, so Tuesday. Not much time left in the middle of the day, in fact, so just a few days left. And um, I think at this point, I've talked to a few people who have said, wait, here's our teaming strategy. Can we do this? And I've said, well, you're not really following the JV rules for small businesses. So if your size protested, you're going to get in trouble because you're just kind of putting together an amalgamation of companies and not doing it the appropriate way. And I'm not sure there's enough time unless you find an LLC that no one's using, which some people have, and then you just do a quick, you know, purchase agreement or something and do it that way. That's kind of the only thing people have time for right now. Well, let's hope for a rainy weekend. Cy Alba is a partner at the law firm Palero Maza. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it 
so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. 
And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.